The following is presented to you in a round sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. Insist on respect the sister, walk around like a woman is. She won't speak, less it's something worse singing. Don't play the girl, take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She's got a natural way, her hips sway furiously. Yeah, the luxurious thing. Carries herself like the cutest, most prettiest thing you see this side of the bay. Hey, this is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro-Black, pro-queer, proudly feminist, and pro-do-what-you-like. Every week, you're going to get the best of what goes on in my head, what we loving on, and what we hating on, what we might be, and what we ain't going to do. Politics, pop culture, what it means to, like, really the fuck be shifting into and hanging out in vacation mode, we cover it all. We know that no matter where you are, it's a challenging time, a changing time, a time of transformation. It's all the things all the time nowadays, but we are going to help you understand the dynamics of this time every single week. So be sure to tune in, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture, so the pod is free 99, because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. The lady don't take no shit, insist on respect, sister walk around acting womanish. She won't speak, less than some words saying don't play, girl take herself so seriously. Our guest this week is making her second appearance on the pod. She's an award-winning political journalist focused on issues of race, gender, and politics. She's a founding mother and editor-at-large for The 19th, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom covering the intersection of women, politics, and policy. She's a contributor on MSNBC, and she was the national writer on race and ethnicity for the Associated Press. I am so, so, so glad that I get to talk to this person right before my vacation because I know I'm going to smile. In fact, Erin is the one that gets me through. So please welcome my sister, Erin Haynes. Erin, I'm so happy to talk to you. It's happening, people. We're here. So look, so here's the context and the premise. Um, When we put into office, and we did elect this man, we did. We elected the orange menace and we said that this man who um, he didn't have no credentials, but we said that he was fit to run not just a country, but an empire. Okay, we put this man in office. People didn't think we were going to do it. They didn't think it was going to happen. They swore, swore, swore up, down, left, right, that we were going to have the first woman president and that women were going to prevail. White women were going to prevail. Now, we put this man in office who openly bragged about grabbing women's genitalia. He's been racist. We knew that from, you know, the exonerated five. And there was a sentiment going around, right, that women were getting activated, energized, and organized, and that women wanted and deserved a rematch. That was for 2020. Here we are in 2022. We are approaching the midterms and it's looking rough, sissy. So I'm just curious to hear your perspective as somebody who 
writes on these issues, studies these issues, analyzes these issues for a living child. This is your bag. And also you're an expert in these things. Um, are women finna get a rematch in November or what are, what are we really looking at for these midterm elections? Well, well, okay. So first of all, uh, yeah, we started a whole newsroom because we thought that the conversation around gender and politics needed to be different. Um, the idea for the 19th for people who may not know is that, I mean, it was hatched after the 2016 election, right? When, when there were so many voters who said, you know, it's not that I can't vote for a woman. It's just that I can't vote for that woman. Right. And it's like, okay, got it. Fast forward 2018, you had, you know, you're the woman, you know, yet again, all these women sweeping into Congress, um, having the most diverse Congress in history, largely because of the women of color who were elected, a lot of them firsts, you know, for their um, for, for their roles. Um, Stacey Abrams coming within striking distance of becoming the first black woman to become governor of Georgia. So, I mean, you know, you had women and particularly black women who have been having something of a rematch in, in some ways, right? Since the 2016 election, fast forward to 2020, you don't, you have six women run for office. None of them apparently are electable either uh, yet for, for, for this country. Um, and that was interesting, right? It was interesting to see the most diverse slate of candidates that, that you'd ever seen in a, in, in a political party. And yet questions of electability, especially around race and gender were still with us. Uh, and so didn't exactly get the rematch that some people wanted to see happen in 2020 in terms of, of a potential woman uh, being the Democratic nominee. But we did get a woman to, uh, you know, and, and first woman of color as vice presidential nominee. And now the first woman vice president, first woman of color to, to serve in that role as the second most powerful person in the country. Again, you've got a record number of women running for office uh, heading into the midterms. And you've got some issues that really could be galvanizing for women who we know are not only the majority of the population, but also the majority of the electorate, right? But um, yeah, I think it is. And we, we definitely are, are considering in, in the two years since the 19th has existed, issues of gender and politics and power. And what that is going to mean is, you know, even as we are seeing increased representation, how is that translating into power? How is that translating into policy? And how is that translating into people's just daily lives? Uh, I think it's something a lot more women, regardless of their politics, are waking up to. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Erin, yes. And I think one thing we keep learning, right, is that white women are acting brand new. Um, as it relates to voting. And even though there are some core issues, right, across gender and across race um, where we share values, there are groups of people that are not voting in their own interest. And white sure. women are one of those groups of people. What is it going to take, Miss Aaron, to get us all on the same page. If there's going to be a women's insurrection, don't we need all the women or do we? Well, you know, that's a, that's a really good question, Alicia. And that's one that I think about a lot, um, you know, being that I'm in a newsroom that was literally named for the suffrage movement, right? But with an asterisk for those yep. of you who have seen our logo, because right. white women threw black women under the bus in 1920, even as we fought shoulder to shoulder for suffrage, Right. So, yes, we know that there's a long history in this country of, of when it is politically expedient uh, for white women to jettison, you know, others uh, and, and choose their race over their gender 
when it comes to them kind of maintaining and preserving power. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the you know there have been various opportunities for a different choice to happen. Um, you know, I think about uh, the feminist movement, which you know we know included again women of color who were also at the table pushing for an agenda that included them in this conversation, right? Women who had been a part of the American workforce, even as white women were discovering that they all, you know, wanted to to have a a larger role in the workplace. Black women, uh, women of color who, you know, had, had been struggling with issues of reproductive access and continue to do so today, who continue to struggle with access to the ballot box, even as white women have not had to continually fight and be vigilant to protect their access to the ballot box since they were able to to attain their access to the franchise in 1920, right? And so, you know, I think a a lot about, actually, it's interesting, Alicia, so this year is the 45th anniversary of something that I learned about not that long ago, and I was astonished that I had not learned about it because of what a momentous event it seemed to be in our nation's history. And I'm talking about the National Women's Conference of 1977. Mm And this was a convening of women, regardless of ideology, if they didn't have no ideology at all, but they were a woman and they were concerned about their standing in this country and what it was going to mean, you know, coming off of the uh, bicentennial of of the birth of this country, Mm -hmm. right? Where they had only, you know, were very recently kind of getting their rights as full citizens in this democracy, right? Where just a few years prior to that conference, they needed permission to get a mortgage, from a man, you know, they needed permission to get credit, a credit card from a man. You know, Roe versus Wade was was only a few years old. Uh, birth control was was a fairly new phenomenon. So like, it was a brave new world for women who were trying to navigate their standing in all kinds of aspects of our society, whether you're talking about homemakers, whether you're talking about caregivers, whether you're talking about in the economy, in academia, in business, in the arts. They were thinking about every aspect of society, and it was a coalition that, frankly, I don't, I don't know that we could have today, given our partisan, polarized political climate. Um, I mean, to your point, we, re- we really do have yet to see whether, you know, women are really going to, even if, even if you know, women vary on their approach to solutions or, or what to do, um, but that they understand that their gender is is the thing that can be a uniting force, given, you know, again, our standing in the population and in the electorate. Mm. It's a really interesting question to consider at this moment. This is really deep because, you know, I I, I was just sitting with Mother Steinem. Yes. <laughs> Mother Gloria yes. Steinem. A, and she was force, just talking to me about this conference, right? And how we need to kind of come back to this, right? Like women need to gather in places all over the country to like write, rewrite how we finna be together and then bring right. it to the damn convention and have it ratified. Okay, um, we all fucking agree. This is how we finna um, roll like, because lit- they finna roll us over. Literally, I mean, you had women from every state and, and, and territories across this country convening in Houston, getting there however they could you know, getting assistance to get there if they needed childcare help, if they needed transportation help, because again, it was 1977 and we weren't all the way free. Okay. 
And so there wasn't neither. no uh, care.com. You feel me? It was not no care.com. <laughs> you couldn't Uber. Right. You know, you, you, but women were helping women to get to this conference so that they could have a voice so that they could be seen. Barbara Jordan was the headliner for this thing. Powerful, mm-hmm. powerful political voice. You know, Shirley Chisholm had just recently, you know, um, made her pioneering history in our politics. And so like you have all these people really just coming together to talk about at the, the, the 200th anniversary of our country, what, what is going to happen with women going forward? Congress funded this conference to the tune of $5 million, paid what? for this conference to come together, paid for a report with a platform with suggestions. Hello, that could be put into place at any time. I'm just going to put that out there. Suggestions are still available. I mean, this is literally the Kerner Commission for women Wow, is what I'm talking about. And... Here we are 45 years later approaching the 250th anniversary of our country and women are in fact feeling less free and equal in our society. And so many of those recommendations that again are still on the table have not been taken up by our society and by our democracy. Mm. It's astonishing. It is, it's flabbergasting. Aaron, look, there are tried and true strategies that our opposition has been using for a long time to keep and maintain unequal and uneven power relationships. I want us to talk about the GOP, not as the party of crazy, um, because I actually feel like we're dealing with a new iteration of an old thing. And They've been using this strategy for a long time, but it's just who gets to lead in the configuration, right? Like who, like if you have a pack and everybody's got their crew, right? It's like, it's like which crew is setting the strategy and the path, right? But they all still crew. (laughs) So I want to talk about race and gender within that, because I think we're having this conversation about the Republican party. We're talking about how this party is an extremist party. And you know, we might have some debate about whether or not this party has gotten more extreme over time. I don't think there's a debate about that, but we might be having this debate. But the bigger issue is how do we understand how the GOP weaponizes race and gender? What should we know about how the GOP is using gender, using race, sometimes together, sometimes separately, to both create opportunities for themselves? or also to block opportunities for us. Give us a little bit of the scoop of, of how you might be seeing that these days. Yeah, I mean, look, it's definitely something that we're thinking about at the 19th. I remember, uh, you know, after the 2020 election, uh, after the events of January 6th, uh, you know, you had President Biden really running his campaign, saying that, you know, his campaign was about a battle for the soul of America. And what I asserted headed into um, the inauguration of, of President Biden and Vice President Harris was that women were going to be among the fiercest fighters in that battle. Uh, and that includes conservative women. I think we've seen some of that. Uh, I'm thinking about recent reporting that we've done. Uh, my colleague, Amanda Becker, who writes uh, a lot about conservative politics and gender, um, talked about the role of Marsha Blackburn, for example in the confirmation hearings of Katanji Brown Jackson, asking her to define, you know, what a woman is, you know, these types of things. Um, And so I think about 
you know, Liz Cheney, who was um, politically useful until she wasn't for the party, right? And so, you know, it was it was great to have, you know, this Republican, powerful Republican woman until she got in the way and then she was a liability and had to go, right? Um, I'll tell you, you catch me uh, this week, just as I have read uh, the amazing profile uh, that is in the cut. And I want to encourage everybody to read this if you have not read this. Carrie Howley is the author. And it is a profile of Marjorie Dannenfelser. And if you do not know who Marjorie Dannenfelser is, Marjorie Dannenfelser is the head of the Susan B. Anthony uh, mm. list. Mm. Uh, basically, the you know, you've got Emily's list, which supports um, candidates who are trying to protect abortion access. She is the on the other side of this uh, for oh. folks who don't know. And and you talked about, you know, the GOP and how this has been a long game. I mean, literally since, you know, Roe was signed into law, you have had people who have actively tried to, you know, been working to bring about uh, the moment that we now find ourselves in as a, as a democracy, right? And uh, she uh, is probably one of the people most responsible for how we get to where we are today. And so, yes, the GOP... Absolutely. There is a gender conversation to to be had about how gender has factored into the Republican Party's efforts around many of the issues uh, that that are really kind of the issues of our time that we are grappling with, whether you're talking about climate, whether you're talking about abortion, whether you're talking about voting rights. uh, Gender is absolutely factoring into those conversations from a partisan perspective. Uh, And that's not just with um, elected officials. It's also absolutely in terms of these races that we're seeing uh, happening now headed into November and the voters who, who will be deciding those races. Aaron, let me ask you, you know, one of the things that I um, have been paying attention to over the last few years is just this backlash to Black power. So if we can make abortion, right, a boogeyman, we can also make Black power, Black Lives Matter, um, you know, fighting against police brutality, we can also make that a boogeyman. And the GOP is doing actually an excellent job in relationship to that, right? Cutting in around um, critical race theory and calling it indoctrination, right? Um, fighting against LGBT rights, right? And call, and really like re-energizing this stereotype around pedophilia and grooming. grooming I mean, what yeah. are what are we fucking doing here? So, what can we project as we head into primaries, and then also, of course, in a few months as we head into generals? Um, I know you get asked this a lot, but I I can't help but not ask it here. What the fuck do the Democrats need to be doing right now, Chow? I mean, look, it. Um, I, I, I before we look forward, I actually want to want to just take a second to look back because you know I think that you know as we're having this conversation about kind of the Supreme Court, what's possible in our politics and in our democracy. Um. You know, because there are so many people, you know, right now or, or or last Monday when this draft opinion leaked, who really couldn't conceive of this moment, right? Didn't didn't think there would ever be a day where we would be thinking about talking about preparing for a post row America, uh, and yet here we are, right? Uh, 
hello, uh, we also thought the same thing about the Voting Rights Act of 1965, right? Like that, that, that was untouchable, had been, you know, reaffirmed and upheld, you know, in Congress. And, and, and surely people understood that the, the right to vote was something that, that, that was bipartisan and that we should all value as members of a democracy. Well, enter 2013, right? And Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act is gutted. Just a few years later, you have Section, section 2, the proactive section of the Voting Rights Act, also gutted with, with little to no consequences, frankly, politically, right? For um, the party that was pushing for that to happen, the party that was saying that, that racism is no longer a factor in our, in our democratic process, right? So there were no consequences for that. And not only that, 21st century voter suppression is on the march, is on the rise under the guise of election integrity, which we know is not a thing because widespread voter fraud is non-existent in this country. But, you know, if there were no consequences for that, you know, why not keep going, (laughs) right? Why not keep going? I I think, um, you know, to your question, thinking about people did not think that, that President Trump could have been elected. And yet again, here we are. It is time for the electorate. It is time for our society to really expand our imagination about what is possible in our politics. And I mean that in all ways, all the ways in which everything is on the table, good, bad, otherwise, what, what, whatever your you know, politics are, everything is on the table. And I think that that is something that um, the Republican Party has been very effective mm-hmm. in messaging, right? Um, I think I've heard kind of the beginnings of messaging from Democrats around um, the reproductive access question in a way that I have not heard, for example, on voting rights as forcefully or as clearly, right? Um, The critical race theory conversation, which, by the way, will absolutely be a factor in the midterms in a lot of races and not necessarily, you know, the national ones, but also some local ones as well, right? Mm -hmm. This is a conversation about education. It's a conversation about our history. And yet that is not the way that it is being framed. And there doesn't really seem to be a very effective counter argument, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way that is going to speak to parents who may be concerned about critical race theory and other issues related to education and race in the classroom. You know, I think this is so powerful, Erin, because I I feel in a way, and I've said this for a couple years now, and people looked at me sideways when I said it, but I said one of the big issues with the approach of the Biden-Harris administration and really the Biden side of that um, administration is that they are approaching the GOP of today as if they were the GOP of yesteryear. Is this a party that can be compromised with? Well, uh, well, I also think the question is, is this a party that is interested in compromise, <laughs> right? Uh, I think that's probably the first question. You know, can, you know, both sides work together? Well, that's only if both sides want to work together. And I, I, don't, I don't know that that is necessarily the case at all. I mean, I, certainly we know that, that, you know, President Biden, uh, after he was elected, talked about wanting to unify the country, talked about wanting to work in a spirit of bipartisanship. That has yet to materialize two years in to this administration, you know. And so 
you know, whether you're talking about voting rights or police reform or infrastructure or, you know, some of the um, things around caregiving and our country's safety net that, you know, th- these these are not things that, that both sides have been able to really come to the table on. I mean, not to mention that you also have a Democratic Party that is not fully unified <laughs> around a lot of these issues uh, that is further complicating things despite them being the party in power right now. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, don't know if bipartisanship is something that is going to happen, but also don't know, uh, you know I, we, we have no evidence <laughs> that suggests that, that bipartisanship is something that both parties are, are actually interested in achieving at, mm. at this point in our politics. Mm. You better come on. Aaron, last time we talked, you was getting ready to write this book. How's the book writing going? Everybody's, you're not supposed to actually ask these questions, but like I just you know want people, I do. But As somebody I, but who's you, written book. I did. Book. You know book. how it's going. Book. <laughs> you know how it's going. What I wanted to ask you was not just how the book writing is going, but is there anything about this moment that we can look toward for inspiration in November? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, look, in the conversations that I'm having with the Black women who are um, pioneering uh, and otherwise leading uh, across our society today, I think so many of them are clear around the notion. See, see for, for years kind of going into... I would say 2018, but certainly into 2020, you know, you had this conversation around black girl magic, you know, so much black girl, black girl magic was, was the thing. It was the catchphrase. I think that, you know, in talking to these black women, these are women who are interested in shifting the conversation from magic to power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is a very different conversation. Magic is something that, you know, just kind of happens and isn't that quirky and maybe it'll happen again and maybe it won't. Like power is a very different conversation. Mm, And the way in which one goes about having power as opposed to exercising magic, those aren't, that's not the same imagery. That's right. Yeah, I think, I think what that suggests to people about what is possible and how you even look at that person is just, it's just a completely different conversation. Mm. I'm feeling fired up. I don't know about you. That helped me because, you know, I was ready to cut somebody today. (laughs) Happy to talk you down. You know, you know. I am most definitely still on vacation. So please welcome my sister, my friend, the amazing, the powerful, the fucking brilliant and incomparable Melissa Harris-Perry with this week's Weekly Roundup. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and I'm bringing y'all a little news roundup this week while our sister Alicia takes a well-deserved vacation. So here it is, our weekly roundup of all things we just ain't gonna do. Now, it has been a hard week. On Saturday, an 18-year-old white supremacist shot and killed 10 Black people in a grocery store in a predominantly Black neighborhood in Buffalo, New York. And there are a few things that we just ain't going to do in response to his murderous act of racial terrorism. Number one, 
We ain't going to let our sister Alicia Garza be lied on, cheated, talked about, or mistreated. Listen, I am still mad that the Buffalo shooter had the nerve to name check Sister Garza in his racist diatribe. <laughs> nah, son, we ain't going to let you do that. You're going to need to keep her name out of your mouth, off your page, and far from your violence. Now, number two, we ain't going to let racist violence steal our joy. Part of how white supremacy keeps us distracted and disheartened is by redirecting our energy, our intellect, and our plans. Now, yeah, we're going to take time to mourn and to weep, and we're definitely going to honor and organize. But we're also going to rest. We're going to eat and laugh and dance. We will not and we cannot set our agendas or our alarm clocks by the whim of white supremacy. We're not going to cower in fear. We're going to walk in the light. And finally, the last thing we ain't going to do, we ain't going to accept this madness as normal because it's not. It's not acceptable for elected officials or mainstream media to aid, abet, and amplify escalating white nationalist violence. And it's not okay to arm the violent either. So we're going to hold it up as madness. We're going to call it out and we're going to demand better. All right, take a breath. Because as hard as this week has been, there's always some good stuff. There's always a few things that we actually want more of. And the number one thing I want more of this week is more Black folk graduating from college. I mean, seriously, the best thing about social media in May are the endless photos, videos, and reels of beautiful, brilliant Black people pomping and circumstancing as they announce their hard-earned academic and scholarly accomplishments to the world. Whether it's a PWI, an HBCU, whether it's med school, law school, or just finishing up high school, we see you graduates. And yes, please give us more of that. And number two, we're just going to go ahead right now, stand up. No, no, go ahead, stand up. And let's give a standing ovation to learning that ABC has renewed Abbott Elementary. This standout sitcom is going to be back for a second season in the fall, and we are all the way here for it. So we will be right there checking out every minute of this show. Now, that's what Lady likes this week, and this has been Melissa Harris-Perry. I'm filling in for my friend and sister, Alicia Garza, and Alicia is going to be right back here next Friday. Now, if you want to connect with me, then go ahead and tune in every single weekday to The Takeaway. We're broadcast on over 300 public radio stations, or you can subscribe to us as a podcast, or head on over to thetakeaway.org. Have a great week, keep your joy up, and post those graduation photos. Where can people find you if they want to follow your incredible work on the socials? 
Oh, wow. So uh, I am pretty easy to find there. Uh, I'm at eMarvelous on the Twitters, you know, for now. I don't know. Uh, we'll Depending see, TBD, on what Elon t- got to say. T- t- TBD uh, on that. Um, but also uh, same, same thing on Instagram where I am, yeah, posting about politics, gender, Peppa Pig, you know, the usual. The use, the use. Young thug. I don't know. Who knows? Let's, let's see where I end up. Aaron, we adore you. Thank you for joining us today on the show. Glad to be back with you. Oh, Talk soon. You're the best. That's it for Lady Don't Take No. But I'll be back next Friday with a new conversation and some more news you can use. We appreciate you joining us. And please, let's keep the conversation going. Tell us what's on your mind. Tell us what you like. And tell us what you ain't gonna take no more of. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. We are also on Meta or Facebook or whatever the fuck we're calling it these days at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. We post ways to do something about things you hear on this show all over our social media. So if we got you amped up today, check out the socials to find out how you can take action. And let's give a special shout out to Jahari Farrar for making sure that people get what they need from our socials. We appreciate you. Please subscribe and write us a review and let the people know what you've heard here today. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our incredible theme is by Latirix. And this pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. And me, I'm your host, Alicia Garza. Lady don't take no shit, insist on respect the sister, walk around like a woman is. She won't speak, less it's something worse, singing don't play. The girl take herself so seriously, people stare curiously. She got a natural way, her hips sway furiously. Love that. Luxurious, carries herself like a...